Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks. Uh, I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Policies and Studies at FEPS, Foundation for European Progressive Studies. And I'm very happy to introduce you today to our distinguished speakers, Kate Piquet and Richard Wilkinson, that can talk with us about health issues and inequality. They are the authors, among plenty of other things, of the spirit level, the inner level, and co-founders of the Equality Trust, on top of being two outstanding scholars. Kate. Uh, Richard, please allow me to use your first names for this uh, podcast. Please do. I pass you the very first and very simple question. Would you have expected such a big global health crisis? Well, yes and no. The public health community has felt for a long time that a pandemic was likely in the future, that we should be prepared for it, um, certainly for the past I'd say 30 years, people have been worried about emerging infections and the possibility of a worldwide pandemic. But I don't think we actually saw this one coming. And when we first heard reports of a new disease in Wuhan in China, I don't think either of us expected that this would be the one that did turn into a pandemic. We'd had several that didn't turn into pandemics. And I think that uh, led to a sort of false sense of security. What you have instead uh, researched in your past was somehow the fragility of our society in terms of our health uh, outcomes and our societal outcomes. So perhaps what was a little bit more foreseeable was the way in which our society would react to a pandemic, to such a big crisis. In general, we have always thought that more equal societies were more adaptable, more flexible, uh, better able to deal with uh, different kinds of crises. But I think also we had imagined that uh, the crises would come primarily from environmental things uh, rather than from health. Indeed, I think there was a tendency to believe that uh, a well-fed, well-nourished, well-off population uh, was much less vulnerable to almost any infection. You know, in trying to understand why the great infections of the past had declined, one of the explanations was simply rising standard of living. So that, I think, again, led to a false sense of security. In effect, what the coronavirus crisis has revealed is the extent of inequalities in some countries, socioeconomic inequalities, but health inequalities as well. And throughout the world, it is always the poorest who are suffering the greatest morbidity and mortality, partly because they're more likely to have underlying conditions that make them more vulnerable to having a serious infection or dying of COVID-19, but also because their living conditions mean they're more susceptible to infection. They're more likely to be in overcrowded housing or have incomes so low that they can't afford to not be working even when it's risky. Or also that we now know how the immune system is weakened by chronic stress. And I think that's an important uh, contributor to health inequalities, particularly in infectious disease. So we think that inequality has sort of, it's come into sharper focus as a consequence of this crisis. 
uh, you have just commented that societies that are more just and more equal are uh, better for everybody, not just for those at the bottom uh, part of the income distribution. I think that this is perhaps very clear to be understood for scholars as well as from some political activists, but is yet not part of the dominant paradigm. What can we do to arrive there and how we can really convince policymakers, uh, people, that equality is uh, a better society for everybody? There's no doubt at all that the main effects of inequality are on the poor. The biggest effects in terms of differences in, in death rates or many other outcomes like uh, uh, how well children do in these international maths and, and literacy tests, all the outcomes uh, are worst amongst the poor. What is new, I think, is recognizing that even fairly well-off people with uh, good jobs and education and homes and so on do less well. Uh, when I say they do less well, I mean that they'd perhaps live a bit longer if they had the same incomes, jobs and education in a more equal country. And uh, they'd live a bit longer. They'd be less likely to be victims of violence. Their children would less be less likely to become seriously involved in, in drugs. In that sort of way, we all do better. But I would emphasize the biggest effects at the bottom. You asked, how do we get this information better known? And I'm not sure we've got an answer to that, apart from doing things like this podcast. I think the evidence is now quite clear that everybody is affected by inequality. How we get that message across to politicians and policymakers and indeed the general public, um, I think we rely on communicating in as many different ways as we can. We do need leadership on these issues at the top, but we also need grassroots movements from below demanding change. Yes, I think that's really important. The things that will really shift uh, inequality in our society, I think, are not just the data, but large-scale protest. The Occupy movement uh, years ago did uh, made enormous advances in public attention and media attention to issues of inequality. And I think that um, Extinction Rebellion has done the same for environmental issues. There's no doubt that large peaceful protests uh, do shift public opinion and put pressure on uh, politicians. I mean, in a way, we're seeing that with the Black Lives Matter protests. I think what needs to happen is people need to understand the connections between the different pandemics that are affecting us. So we have a pandemic of air pollution that kills hundreds of thousands of people every year. We have a pandemic of obesity which increases people's risk of diabetes and heart disease um, and worse morbidity and mortality from COVID-19, among other things. We have a climate crisis. We do have a pandemic of um, prejudice and discrimination against people from black and minority ethnic populations and indigenous populations throughout the world. All of those problems are made worse by inequality and addressing inequality is a key way to start solving some of those worldwide problems. So those making those connections, I think, is a very important thing that we can do. You have uh, spoken uh, about pandemics, uh, plural. I like that. So we came here to discuss about 
how to redress our society after the big pandemic and you scale up the challenge as well. You put inequalities at the core of the solution, actually at the core of the problem for obesity, pollution, uh, discrimination as well. So we didn't enter in this crisis, in these pandemics, uh, with a very robust and just society. We are somehow not fit to provide a very solid, robust response. Uh, our society is not that resilient. How and actually where would you start in order to redress these worrisome trends of increasing inequalities? Where, where would you put your, uh, the priority first? Where, where would you like to intervene in order for the society to be better equipped to deal with these pandemics? I think we do need to put inequality at the, at the heart of any plans and scenario planning for, for recovery. I think we should put children's life chances at the heart of that as well and children's rights so that we're trying to avoid the intergenerational transmission of inequality and deprivation as we come out of um, lockdown. But I also think we can learn a lot from societies that have done better than, than perhaps the one we're sitting in. If we look across the world, some countries have appeared to be much more resilient um, to the COVID-19 pandemic and have had leadership that has provided um, a strong public health response. So if we look at South Korea, if we look at New Zealand, well, if we look anywhere, frankly, rather than the UK, the USA and Brazil, most countries are understanding that their response to COVID-19 has to be a socially just one. But I think unless we have a, a vaccine, and I think it's very uncertain if and when that will come, we should not think of the lockdown as being progressively lifted uh, once and for all. I think there will be continuous outbreaks in, in different countries, which will mean parts of the lockdown have to be restored. Uh, the only possibility, I think, of avoiding that is really good tracking and tracing uh, systems, which uh, allow a, a greater easing of the lockdown. But maybe we'll be in this situation trying to keep the reproduction rate of uh, COVID below one for several years. I think we're aware that throughout the world there are lots of people and lots of networks who are thinking about this time as an opportunity, positive change, and are starting to work towards trying to create a consensus about what the policy responses should be. We've seen lots of discussion about possible universal basic incomes, more public services to support people, job guarantees, discussions of that nature. And I think one thing the COVID-19 crisis has shown us is that when governments want to act, they can. And if they want to spend money on things, they'll find that money. So at the moment, um, we just heard today in the UK, our Office for National Statistics has reported that unemployment has not risen during the crisis. And that's because the government is underpinning 80% of the salaries of people who cannot work during the crisis. They also managed to basically house all the homeless people in Britain within about a week, having previously said that that strategy was going to take, take years to be successful. So we are seeing that when governments want to, they can act in the public interest. Um, and so I think that does give us some optimism. No, 
I'm re- I'm I'm backing off my optimism actually because I think do think we're we're probably facing a worldwide recession of great depth. Yeah, I so I I agree that the recession will be massive and perhaps it will go uh, even beyond the the worrisome estimation that some economists are putting forward now. But uh, perhaps we can share a little bit of optimism in the direction that you were uh, hinting at. So in the sense of recognizing for the government, for the public sphere, higher legitimation to intervene in the economy as well as in uh, market outcomes somehow. Then we have to see how we can uh, make use of this uh, space and this uh, renewed interest for public intervention. Uh, in a way that goes beyond the current pandemic. And uh, we make use of public-led initiatives also to address the other pandemics that you have listed uh, before. I think there are reasons to be optimistic. Before the pandemic, there was a sort of total dismissal of expertise uh, to advise government and so on. Uh, I think that has changed radically in lots of countries. The reliance, uh, people talking about the science, almost uh, like Greta Thunberg does on uh, environmental things, uh, pleading with politicians to follow the science. Uh, We're much closer to that, at least on the pandemic. I think also that uh, there can't be a return to austerity policies. I think that they've been seen to fail. Uh, We are very aware of their costs. Um, I think that uh, there will have to be higher taxes on the rich and so greater equality. I think also we recognise now the essential occupations and the value of many of the jobs which are so poorly paid. I think if there are strikes amongst uh, nurses or shop workers or whatever, it'll be much harder uh, not to give in to those. I think there will be public uh, support uh, for those kinds of movements. I think that also it's clear that we've seen a growth of solidarity in streets and villages all over uh, the country. People have been using uh, WhatsApp and uh, similar systems Uh, to keep in touch with each other, but also to identify the vulnerable, um, to make sure someone's doing their shopping, that they aren't uh, completely isolated. And I think there's enormous enjoyment uh, of that greater sociability. And I really hope we can keep that going as the pandemic passes. So I think there are a lot of reasons for optimism, including things like the the greater awareness of health inequalities, the vulnerability of uh, ethnic minorities, which, you know, we working in health inequalities, we've been aware of those issues for so long. And yet uh, it came as quite a shock to the public to recognize uh, how big these uh, differences were. And coupled with, with, I suppose, the recognition that some of the minority ethnic groups who uh, were the butt of a lot of racism, uh, how important their contribution is, particularly Uh, for us in health services. Let me try to come up with a double question. You both mentioned uh, potential uh, policy uh, solutions such as the universal basic income, uh, taxation, job guarantees, but I would like uh, to focus on two issues. Uh, One is education and the other is health. 
Uh, Kate, at the beginning of your answers, you basically said that uh, the first thing that you mentioned was education for children, identifying the eradication of uh, social exclusion and inequality within children as a fundamental and priority to make stronger societies. This is very much in line with what FEPS, Foundation for European Progressive Studies, uh, is currently doing. We have a, another big project on uh, towards a child union, and we are focusing on early childhood education uh, and care, uh, as well as the European Union uh, that is putting forward a proposal for a child guarantee uh, with an attempt perhaps to start changing the narrative between uh, child care as a demand-driven service to child care as, as an essential right of children. I think that's um, a women's rights issue as well as a child rights issue. I think women have been particularly hard hit in this crisis by trying to juggle work and childcare and the burden falling primarily on them in families. It's, it's interesting in the UK, there's quite a lot of discussion at the moment about getting children back to school and a growing recognition that for vulnerable children in deprived areas, missing out on months of education could be, you know, seriously disadvantage them throughout the rest of their lives. And so we're starting to see some children returning to school for some of the time, but nobody's discussing early childhood education, nurseries and childcare. And yet if we want to get people back to work safely, then we're going to have to figure out how to do early childhood education and care safely. I think that's a real challenge. And the other point would be what can be done actually in order to redress health inequalities. So put yourself in the shoes of advising governments and advising the European Union or the, Euro the European Commission. To what extent would you push on a child guarantee and what perhaps could be done in terms of securing better health outcomes from a policy perspective? I think for so long there has been a sort of um, running battle in public health between people who uh, think that uh, you deal with these issues uh, of health inequality and so on simply by persuading people to change their behaviour, to live healthier lives. But it's a really uphill struggle to change behaviour. Studies suggest that it's the success rates in getting people to take exercise or eat, eat differently are extraordinarily low uh, when you don't change the circumstances in which people are living. So uh, increasingly, people in public health and epidemiology emphasise that you have to have structural change. Uh, the big structural changes, of course, are reducing the inequality that creates the deprivation uh, so closely associated with uh, worse health uh, results. But I think we have to think of this not just in terms of health, because we know inequality affects so many different outcomes. Um, we've been talking about children, child welfare. Um, if you look at equal opportunities for children, um, the figures on social mobility show that uh, opportunities for children are much less equal in more unequal countries. As they grow up, their well-being, their, their careers and so on are so much more closely determined by parental income 
than is true in, in more equal countries. But when we think of the climate uh, uh, crisis that we're going to face as we come out of this, where we're already facing it. One of the biggest problems is consumerism. And if you want to reduce consumerism, it's very clear that you have to reduce inequality that creates the status competition driving um, a lot of that uh, consumption. There are studies that show if you live in a more equal uh, area, you are less likely to spend money on a flashy car, on clothes with the right uh, fashion labels and so on. I think we must see that inequality solves all sorts, greater equality solves all sorts of problems, including making a more cohesive society, a more sociable society in which we help each other as well. If greater equality were a medicine there'd be a huge demand for it. Uh, my next question would, would instead focus on the type of responses and the type of actions that you see around you in the UK. We would like somehow to em emphasize that, as you have, as you have stressed uh, before, that is people demanding change that can bring change about. But it's not only demanding, is that uh, some of our communities are actually transforming already with new ideas and new concepts. So um, how have you, uh, what is your uh, understanding of the ongoing uh, community-led changes um, in the UK? Difficult question. It's, yes, that's quite challenging. Uh, there's so many things going on. Some of them are very positive, like the mutual aid groups that, that Richard was describing in communities. There's also been a lot more cross-sector collaboration. So at the moment, um, the UK is on an emergency footing and every district has what are called gold, silver and bronze commands. And those bring together the National Health Service, together with public health representatives, together with local authorities, voluntary sector organisations, etc., to plan for the response to the crisis and to, and to plan for recovery. So we've got people talking to each other who never talked to each other before. We've got agencies acting together who didn't act before. And in the district where I do most of my work, there's been a very welcome openness to being presented with evidence that I think is, is also something of a, a sea change. So I hope that some of those things, you know, will, will be continued. I found out that, that locally, children's services, which normally provide social work to very vulnerable children, are now talking to teachers, to health visitors, to midwives, to try and collectively identify children who are not yet in need of serious safeguarding, but are vulnerable in some way, and then planning together how they might address that and keeping in touch with those families. And what's surprising is that that didn't happen before COVID-19. But what's good is that they're planning that they probably will continue to work like that after it. I think that uh, one of the important things is uh, the governments have been forced to recognise uh, that well-being, uh, health and well-being come first before economic growth. Uh, that's been shown so strongly and clearly by uh, changes in, in policy, sacrificing growth to uh, health and well-being of the population. And I, I think that has affected 
thinking in all sorts of areas, local councils, local government all over the country. I think people are thinking more in those terms. Of course, the work uh, that people like uh, Richard Layard have been doing for so many years on, on the determinants of happiness. It's all about the quality of social relationships between people, dealing with bullying in schools, um, all sorts of things like that, which are quite a long way from the simple facts of economic growth. Though I, I don't mean that we can ignore poverty. We have to deal with poverty. We have to, as we've said, increase equality. But that isn't the same as economic growth. Um, and it should be done uh, in terms of trying to improve the health, well-being and happiness of the population. Let me try to ask you the, the last question. We have mentioned the change in the type of demand for government intervention in this uh, global health crisis. And uh, the change has also largely affected uh, fundamental freedoms freedom of movement, for instance. Some uh, governments have taken the opportunity somehow to expand perhaps a little bit too much their hand into the homes of people and into the, into the society, trying to use this pandemic to expand their illiberal uh, approach. Now, on the other side, so we want to protect uh, society from these uh, excess of harmful and illiberal practices, but while at the same time we want a state that maybe sometimes uh, offer a sort of a paternalistic approach, for instance, in which uh, we, we would like the state to intervene in the, in the presence of uh, sugar in sodas or in the way in which we bike or drive or drive a car. Uh, somehow limiting uh, the freedom for the general well-being. So how actually to reconcile uh, this problem and ensure that, that the paternalistic approach, that the intervention of the state into our daily life is not harmful? Um, in the UK, what you're describing as a paternalistic state tends to be known as the nanny state, which is, I suppose, a more maternalistic um, view of it. And I've always thought I would love to live in a nanny state, actually, because nannies take care of you, they look after you, they nurture you, they keep you safe. It's obviously a balance needs to be struck between intervening to protect the public um, and controlling individual freedoms. We often make those decisions for the best interests of public well-being. We demand that people drive within a speed limit, that they wear a safety belt, that um, people on motorbikes wear helmets. We've banned tobacco advertising to children. We've banned smoking in most public spaces. You know, so, so we do make those decisions at times. They do restrict people's freedom, and some people chafe against that. But in general, if the public can see that a controlling action is being taken for the public good, I think they're generally accepting of it. But again, inequality plays a role here because inequality is related to levels of trust in society, generalized trust, the way we 
trust other people who we don't know. Including trust in government. Including trust in government. So in a more equal society with higher levels of trust, there'll be more trust that the government is intervening for good. And I think less of those concerns about restrictions on on individual liberties. I think that the, and in relation to what Kate's been saying, uh, what the population has accepted uh, during lockdown um, shows that if people believe that this is for the public good, if they do trust government, and there have been a number of uh, things in this country which have uh, brought that into question, um, they will do uh, they will put up with various restrictions. And of course, this may be necessary uh, to deal with the environmental crisis. But essential to that trust is seeing that these policies, these restrictions, maybe on what we can buy, like uh, cars and the amount of fuel we use and so on, uh, they have to be seen as fair. Uh, the Gilets Jaunes uh, protests in, in France that went on so long against a proposed uh, rise in fuel tax show absolutely uh, that policies have to be seen as fair as well as being seen as in the public interest. Thank you, uh, Professor Kate Piquet, Professor Richard Wilkinson. Thanks a lot for your time and for the insights uh, and ideas you share with us. Uh, I would like to conclude this uh, um, FAPS talk with uh, um, a 30 second each uh, wish or advice, if you want, for the European Union from the UK, from two distinguished scholars. What would you wish to the European Union or what would you advise the European Union to do? I would advise the European Union to look closely at Green New Deal, at your children's rights, ask at the recommendations of the Commission for Sustainable Equality and to do as Richard said, going forwards, try to make sure that all policies are fair, that they're equitable and seen as such and that they put well-being ahead of growth. I would um, approach it in terms of the things that are going to help reduce income inequality. Uh, large international organizations like the EU uh, have considerable power in dealing with tax havens and tax avoidance. We have to have international agreements to deal with those problems. Um, but I think even more fundamental than that, we have to begin to change power uh, in are large companies, multinationals, and so on. So I think strengthening employee representation on company boards is absolutely essential. Uh, greater economic democracy of that kind uh, seems to go with smaller income differences, um, and it embeds greater equality more deeply into our society. And on a slightly flippant note, one message to the EU would be, Please let us back in when we come to our senses. <laughs> yes. I think that is a fantastic closing. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.